The business of culture, the culture of business, entrepreneurs, policy, media, markets, the meaning of life, and much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's a lot of pivots in your career, and this is not a forever moment. And by the way, a lot of entrepreneurs I know actually took a job, got fired from a job, and that's actually the thing that unlocked them. So even failure isn't a defining thing. In fact, failure can be the very thing that unlocks you to have the most amazing career after that. So you just graduated from college or grad school or your parents' basement. While you don't want to just surrender to law school or a random desk job, you're terrified of losing ground while your classmates make bank or make partner. You don't quite know what to do. Well, dear graduate, take heart and take heartfelt advice from pros who once were in similar shoes. Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me is peripatetic 20-something DJ Lee. He graduated from the University of Richmond in 2018 with a degree in business administration. Uh, While at Richmond, he was a three-year captain of the Division I baseball team. He completed his fifth year of eligibility in baseball and was drafted to play professionally by the Oakland A's of Major League Baseball. We're talking Moneyball. Although injury and COVID delayed DJ's baseball career, he used the time to begin a profession. He started his senior year uh, working at Runrate as a financial analyst. Did I summarize that correctly? Yep, that's right. And many things have happened since, and now you are at Run Rate Ventures, and you've partnered with Sandbox, a local consulting company, and you have reinvented yourself. Talk to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Run Rate and uh, Sandbox um, kind of partnered. Wow, I guess that was my beginning of 2019. And both were set out to help startups and small businesses grow um, and to support founders through uh, like fractional. CFO services, HR products and services, so on and so forth. Really had passion um, around uh, helping founders grow their startup companies. They kind of have separated ways a little bit and Runrate Ventures kind of is rebranded, has a new vision um, around um, helping founders and um, really supporting them strategically to uh, help them get their company to, to where they need to be. Now, DJ, we know about the infamously difficult funnel from college athletics to professional athletics, especially sustainably professional long-term careers. There is that famous photo of Tom Brady, uh, the NFL GOAT at the turn of the century. There's actually online, you could find his resume at the University of Michigan, where he thought he was going to end up working at Merrill Lynch, and that he just got drafted as like a supplemental 
what was it, a sixth round? Or I don't even remember what it was. Yeah, it was um, late. It was very late. I, I believe the owner, Robert Kraft, called him Kyle Brady when he met him on the field. He goes on to become the best quarterback, arguably, in history. But he had this other plan. He, you know, It was a speculative thing for him to become a professional football player for as long as he was. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was always taught, even just as a child, you know, I was pursuing my, my baseball career as long as I possibly could. But I knew that, you know, baseball can only take you so far um, and everyone has to hang up the cleats at some point. So I wanted to be prepared for when that happened. I'm also a big fan of um, walking, walking the road as, as long as possible before having to, to pick a, a different road. So I was very fortunate to be able to, to work while I was still training to start my first professional uh, baseball season. And that allowed me to get a lot of reps and get a lot of experience um, in the workforce while I was still you know, chasing that baseball dream. Take me back to 22-year-old you, and obviously this this was extended because of COVID. You had many people. I know the, the U of R's basketball team, which just won the A-10 tournament. We knew that my son, as a fan, was elated that they got extra eligibility. But you also wanted to, with COVID and everything, especially, you know, we, we did this episode in May of 2020, and the, the unemployment rate was at 15%, and everybody was firing people, and nobody was hiring you'd be very grateful at that point to have some sort of salary paying backup. Yeah, absolutely. So I was very fortunate to uh, run into Mike Page during my time at Richmond. Um, he was an entrepreneur in residence and uh, we made the connection initially um, through the, I think it was the Entrepreneurship Club. It was the first and last meeting I went to there. Um, but he was a guest speaker that day. And uh, afterwards, I introduced myself and um, you know, he, he was looking for some interns at the time. And uh, this was my senior year, actually. And I started doing some projects for him. And that just grew into um, a relationship to uh, where we are today, really. And that's, that's um, you know, partners in a, in, a, in a venture that we're super excited about. Uh, DJ, can you step back for a moment and tell me about the trajectory of your baseball career, everything from high school to college, and maybe the, the buildup? You were also a great student athlete. Your grades were great. You were involved in clubs. You had a great metabolism for extracurriculars and, and you were drafted by the A's. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we could go on all day talking about, you know, what I've gotten out of the game of baseball and, you know, where it's taken me and what I've learned from it. But the short version is, um, you know, I, I was swinging a baseball bat ever since I could walk. Uh, my dad played professional baseball um, and it was, you know, in my blood, in my family, in my DNA. So always a, always a baseball player, played other sports in, in high school, um, but really, you know, my junior and senior year of high school really like focused on baseball and, and dropped some other sports to, to do that. Beyond that, you know, I was kind of under recruited coming out of high school. Um, I was recruited to only two Division I schools. Well, were you a good student? Were you a good student in high school? I was. Yeah, I was a good student in high school. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a professional baseball player. So I had I had them both coming down to me hard um, to uh, excel in, in the fields that that they excelled in. And I, uh, you know, it, it, it helped me. It definitely helped me. So a lot. were you gunning for academic excellence or did you want a great D1 program that was I mean, you could do both theoretically. I mean, Stanford, a handful of baseball programs. We know UVA. Uh, you don't have to kind of either or. Yeah, absolutely. So the best piece of advice I ever got, like from a college athlete when I was in high school, 
was to find a place that I would enjoy going to school. God forbid baseball, you know, ended. Right. And that's always a possibility for any athlete. Injuries happen. Um, things happen off the field. And, um, you know, there's always a world where you're not able to, to play the sport that you thought you would. So I, you know, was definitely focused on finding a place where I could uh, um, excel both on the field and be challenged academically. And Richmond was the perfect fit for that. And I was super fortunate to cross paths with uh, Tracy Woodson, who was uh, a new coach at Richmond at the time. Um, he was recruiting me to go to um, a, a small Division One school in Indiana. He got the job in Richmond, and uh, he kind of brought me with him um, as he was uh, transitioning over. You know, and as a little aside, I love the Tracy Woodson story because when I take my son to Spider's uh, baseball games and we sit there, and he's like a tall, imposing, kind of grumpy-looking figure, but I specifically remember his face as a Dodgers fan at the euphoria of them winning the 88 World Series. And that journey that must have been very difficult for him to filter to the majors and actually get a World Series ring. And then in the, you know, let's say the 25, 30 plus five years since to uh, become kind of a journeyman manager and then to mentor all of these these athletes and these student athletes coming through. Yeah, he brought just an absolute like plethora of knowledge to the game. Um, of baseball. He manages the game better than any coach that I've ever been around and uh, always brings in the, the, the right assistant coaches around him to, um, you know, help players um, excel and help them, you know, become their best uh, version of themselves as an athlete. So super grateful for Tracy Woodson and everything he did for me and uh, super excited about um, his future with uh, Richmond Baseball. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to DJ Lee. He is a 20-something partner at RunRate Ventures, where he's helping scale small businesses and startups, including a company of your own. I want you to tell me about that. You were a star baseball player at the University of Richmond. You were drafted professionally by the Oakland A's. What was it like to go through the farm system? I mean, when you were called up, what 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 did that whole what was that whole process like? It's not like you're in a hotel ballroom. It's almost anticlimactic with the uh, baseball draft. Russell Wilson was drafted. Um, Tom Brady. I remember Mike Piazza, one of the stars of the Dodgers. He was like <laughs> forgotten and then becomes a Hall of Famer. Yeah, it's um, it's a wild ride. Um, you know, there could be a full podcast series and there probably are full podcast series on what it's like to be a minor league baseball player in the farm system. But um, yeah, draft day, I was actually out to dinner with some friends and uh, I got a phone call and uh, from one of the scouts, the local scouts um, who actually lives in Richmond, who uh, works for the A's. And he told me that I was about to hear my name selected. Funny enough, it's just like, a, you know, the NFL draft just happened. It's, it's televised, the whole thing. But um, I just had to go online and find an audio recording to, to hear myself. I found out through Twitter. Um, I saw Major League Baseball tweeted my name and uh, said that I was selected to go to the Oakland A's. So um, it was it was still just as exciting, I'm sure, um, you know, knowing that, you know, everything that you've worked so hard for really your whole life to uh, get to this moment was uh, was it was all coming to fruition. So, so what was there a signing ceremony? Was there a decision like DJ Lewis? You know, I'm taking my talents to the East Bay. No. So in baseball, you get drafted and, uh, you know, they kind of select you and not the other way around. In college, you know, you get that you get to, you know, look at the all the hats on the table and pick your hat, which, which school you want to go to. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in uh, professional baseball in the draft, they, they select you and uh, you do have the option to, to opt out, but it's not favorable to you. 
um, to do that. So uh, most Wait, people, so hold up, hold uh, up. They select you and you have to show up for a physical or something at the single A affiliate somewhere, which was where? Yeah, so um, I so I actually had a unique situation because I was I was actually injured during the time I got drafted. So usually, what would happen though is um, you get drafted, you know, two or three days later, you get on a plane and you go out to their spring training complex. So it was in Phoenix, Arizona, in Mesa, Arizona, actually, and um, you would go out there, go through all your physicals and stuff. They'd you know show you around, get you you know kind of familiar with um, the coaches, the the facility, all that stuff. And uh, you jump right in. You'd start playing like scrimmage games. And from there, you probably go through about a week, maybe 10 days of workouts before they would um, kind of split everyone off and send them to their affiliate teams. And, you know, each each organization has four to five affiliate teams starting from rookie ball, um, low A, high A, double A, triple A, and then, you know, the big league squad. So from there, it's kind of just a free for all. They uh, They get to send people wherever they feel like is best for each player. And um, yeah, I, I actually, you know, had, like I said, a unique situation. I was hurt. So I didn't end up reporting right away. Um, and then COVID hit. So then I didn't, I didn't get a chance to report the following year. And uh, then, you know, finally in 2021 showed up and uh, went through um, extended spring training, had unfortunately another injury. Um, so uh, stuck it out in Phoenix, Arizona during the hot months of uh, June and July and then got called up to um, the high A club in Lansing, Michigan. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, that was super exciting. And then uh, finished the year out there before, um, you know, ultimately being released by the organization um, at, by the end of the season. So, DJ, uh, is there any salary negotiation in this? Is there any way to make a living as a single A player, as a, as a greenhorn? Yeah. So not really. There's uh, there's no there's no salary negotiation between like player and organization. The Major League Baseball player or the yeah Major League Baseball Player Association, uh, which are these the uh, the big league players, they have been fighting hard for minor league for minor leaguers really all in all to help them uh, you know get better salary get better wages. You know I always say that on the whole baseball deal, I probably I probably lost money on the whole baseball deal. Um, I signed for very little amount of money. Um, you get a signing bonus uh, when that happens, and then you basically just get a stipend that basically covers your, you know, costs of living. Maybe a little bit more depending on what level you're at. But you know, during spring training and extended spring training, you don't get paid anything. They cover your your housing and they give you per diem to eat your meals, but no additional salary on top of that. And then beyond that, when you go to higher levels, you know, you get paid, you know, a few hundred dollars a week, uh, but then housing is on your own. So uh, you kind of get stuck in these situations where you could either live in a house with six other guys and, um, you know, sleep on air mattresses on the floor so that you can keep some money and put some money away. Or you can, uh, you know, spend all your money on rent and uh, not be left with, with too much else. So that's the, the difficulties of being a minor league baseball player, but it's definitely changing. They're making strides in the right direction, which is awesome for you know baseball as a whole. Now, DJ, we do want to talk grit and the resilient 20-something. And, and a lot of people who contact us, their parents included, about their kids about to graduate from college into this grade wide open. There's a binary, you know, I go to law school, I go to medical school, I go do some entrepreneurship, some internship thing. No shortage of people are unhappy with that initial path. How did you keep your perspective or how did you stay chipper? Did you look at this as kind of a a, a version of kind of grad school or you were getting paid a stipend to keep learning and experimenting? 
on the baseball front or on the uh, like on the baseball front first? Yeah. So on the baseball front, you know, I was really just chasing chasing my dream, and and baseball is a game that I just absolutely love and have played my entire life. And um, you know, I was really just trying to play the game as long as I could. You know, it's it's a kid's game, and um, I was putting off the the real world adulting as, as long as I could just to be able to chase that dream. Um, professionally, um, on the you know career front, you know, I was I was I was um, I had some some difficulty like managing both. I was working essentially a full time job um, while training for baseball. Had a lot of long days, long off seasons of you know getting up at. 6 a.m. to train so that I can be in the office by, you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock, working a full day. And then, you know, once the season started rolling around, then it was, you know, getting your, your hitting in, your throwing in, all that stuff, all the skill work training that takes place as the season starts rolling around. So, you know, I, uh, you know, I was, I was investing in myself and that's kind of how I, I think of it. You know, I was investing in myself and, uh, you know, hoping that that investment would pay off in my future, which I feel like it has. And, um, for that, I'm, I'm super grateful and uh, wouldn't change anything about it. Tell me about your own company and what you're doing with Runrate Ventures and uh, the various other partnerships such as Sandbox. Yeah. So um, Sandbox um, was a partnership that, um, like I said, started in 2019. We were really just focused on helping startups um, grow, helping them you know, raise money and uh, get through those like really difficult stages of growth in their company. Runrate Ventures um, is really a new um, idea and entity that's been formed. And it's really about strategically helping these startup companies and small businesses accelerate and grow where we you know, feel like there's opportunity to do so. So um, we really are looking for, you know, even if it's just a, a new idea, someone with a new concept that needs just some support strategically and getting their business off the ground. Both Mike and Fred, um, Fred Bryant um, and Mike Page have significant experience in, in, in growing companies from what we call like whiteboard stages where you're essentially mapping out your business model on a whiteboard. And uh, Mike Page especially has has experience taking those businesses all the way through to to IPOs. So you know they bring a a wealth of knowledge to this this business, and uh, we're really excited to to see it you know unfold. Uh, myself in particular, you know I uh, learned a lot while I was you know partnering with Sandbox, especially around these small businesses and startups. And during my time at Sandbox, I I really like saw and and learned two things and. It's that, um, you know, small businesses and, and startups fail to leverage the data that they have in the same way that large companies do. So what I really took away from that is that I had a true passion. This is the second thing I learned is that I, I had a true passion in helping small businesses solve that problem. And uh, it was kind of a, a niche environment that I, I found myself in continuously. And uh, we go to new startups and new companies and they'd all have the same problems. And it's, it was around managing their data. Um, and large companies have the resources. They can they can pay a hundred dollars an hour. They can pay one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for a data scientist to to go into their data, clean it up, and present it to decision makers. Um, small businesses and startups don't necessarily have that same you know luxury. So uh, what we wanted to do, and what I am hoping to do in um, launching this new company, is helping small businesses and startup companies really solve that problem. Um, and, and to provide a, a productized solution to, to help them do that um, and help them, you know, manage and, and leverage their data. Now, DJ, in the few minutes we have left, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I know Fred Bryant and Mike Page quite well. In fact, they introduced me to you. I'm a journalist in residence at the University of Richmond, where 
We've done many full disclosure lives, it, you know, in terms of creative problem solving and live shows and students who come and help us produce things. I remember the takeaway when I first met Mike is that these guys are really interested in human capital and human potential. And they could take a poet, a baseball player, someone who's kind of interested, has the raw material of desire and creativity and you know, charm, grit, whatever you want, kind of unshaped at age 18 or 19 and and morph that person into something that might give them a focus, might give them a challenge, such as what Run Rate Ventures did. I won't say that they're misfits or anything, but he's saying that a lot of recruiting firms miss great talent by overlooking people with, you know, off the beaten path specializations and concentrations and everything. Turn this around to a lost 21, 22-year-old, 18-year-old undergrad who comes to you and says, what is the best advice you can give me for the next five or 10 years in terms of getting noticed that matrix between passion and pay and upside and experience? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was that lost 21, 22-year-old something looking for what I wanted to do next, especially if I didn't know that baseball was going to work out and I needed to to figure out what my life looked like if it didn't. And, uh, you know, for me, what really has paid dividends is, um, you know, investing in myself and continuing to put myself in a position to grow and learn. When I was looking for um, work experience, um, I, I found exactly that at Run Rate. And with Mike Page in particular, he you know invested in me as a you know non-traditional uh, source of talent, where um, I wasn't you know necessarily qualified to do exactly what you know a traditional resume. My, my resume didn't look like a traditional resume. Didn't have a lot of work experience due to baseball. But you know, since I was a kid, I I, I love numbers and I love small businesses and startups. And he leveraged that and um, you know had and really helped me to grow in the ways that I needed to. And he challenged me to um, you know always grow with my clients and my company and to help them solve their problems, I had to first figure them out on my on my own. You know, the hands-on experience that I gained from my time um, at RunRate was unmatched. You know, I started, it was probably my first or second week and I was in one-on-one meetings with CEOs of, of you know, major startups in Richmond. Um, and they had problems and they were looking to me. So I got I got to ask you is that I mean if you had to distill that down to these bets that these guys made Mike and Fred is that one you're a competitor and two you were hungry and I guess grateful and at the intersection of that was the raw material for a person to learn and advance at something maybe I'm misreading it No that's exactly right they were you know they were looking to to grow uh non-traditional talent into something that was useful and what I got out of it was the opportunity to continue to learn and to grow um, and to kind of find my way um, in the professional workforce. Um, I did not know what I wanted to do coming out of graduation, but I knew what I liked to do. And they, you know, helped me leverage that and they helped me kind of find my path um, in a way that, you know, I'm always going to be grateful for. What do you say to the deer in headlights, uh, recent graduate, somebody maybe living with their parents or half heartedly going into, a, you know, IT training program or sitting staring at that LSAT? application. What can you advise? Like if you're paralyzed or if you need to take time off, there's so many different strains of follow your passion, follow something that you're good at and find your passion on the side. Is there something that you think about that you could wish you could impart 
not that there is one size fits all advice. Yeah. And yeah, knowing that there's not one size fits all advice, my, what I've, what I hope people take away from my story is just the ability to, to chase like hands on experience to, you know, be able to use that and leverage that to grow, you know, really as a professional. Like I said, I had, you know, meetings with, CEOs on my second week where they were looking to me for answers and it challenged me to really, you know, step my game up and continue to to learn, grow and develop my skills so that I could uh, be a resource that people could rely on. So that would be my two cents. And that's just to chase chase that hands on experience. Is there any shame, say, in saying, look, I was finding myself, I worked as a barista in Buenos oh. Aires or something? Can a person can a person dress that up or make that or do stuff on the side to make it impress an employer like you? Not at all. There's no shame in that at all. You know, I have friends who've played baseball for, you know, 10 years after college and um, are, you know, now just entering into the workforce. And uh, I tell them, you know, you have the same experiences that someone else might have. It just looks a little bit different. It's packaged a little bit different. You know, you've managed a hundred clients at once plus parents, right? You're, you're giving lessons to a hundred kids and, um, you know, you're managing the parents who might be a little bit over, like step over the line in what it, what it takes to, um, you know, be a, a coach or, uh, to give lessons. And you've managed those relationships. That's the same thing as managing client relationships in the workforce. And you just need to, to dress it up and package it in a way that makes sense to these employers who are making these decisions. DJ, star baseball player at University of Richmond, who went on to play professionally with the Oakland A's farm system, is now a partner with Run Rate Ventures, where they advise small businesses and startups. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm curious to follow your your career path. You still have so much ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, you know, I appreciate everything that um, you've done for me. Full disclosure, stay with us. A reminder that you can find us across social media, whether Twitter, Insta, Facebook, at handle FullDRadio. My DMs are always open. Joining me from New York, is it? From New York. Mariam Bani Karim, Head of Marketing Global and Community at Nextdoor and co-founder of New York City Next. She has worn many hats in her two-decade-plus professional career. She was previously Chief Marketing Officer at Hyatt at Gannett. She held Senior Executive Position at NBC Universal, where she was SVP of Integrated Sales and Marketing, Chief Marketing Officer of Univision. Gosh, you have been everywhere. And what I like about you, Mariam, is that you have been very transparent about how bumpy that journey has been. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me live from Chelsea, New York. Live from Chelsea, New York. Well, look, this is that time of year where we get emails and voicemails from various parents and students. There's a tremendous amount of pride, but consternation because it's called commencement. You are commencing. You are going out there into this brave new world. And it's an amorphous world. Two years ago, all these jobs were disappearing because of the pandemic and students were terrified. Now we're amidst the great resignation and students still have anxiety. I mean, do I want to go into a purpose-led career? Do I want to make money? Do I want to go to law school? How often do you get contacted with these very questions? Pretty regularly. I mean, I think, yes, as people are getting ready to graduate, but as you've been pointing out, there's been a backdrop that has many people thinking about how they're going to live their lives, right? I think you and I are both Iranian. We know that from a personal perspective, having lived through a lot of tumult and chaos as a result of that, sometimes those things remind you that you only live once. And so how are you going to actually make choices that 
make you happy on a given day while also giving you some sort of financial stability. Well, the immigrant students, though, also remind me that their parents say, look, we sacrificed a lot to come here, get a practical job, go into IT or investment banking or consulting, something that can be parlayed down the road. But uh, there's no kind of no-brainer slam dunk thing right out of college. I find, and and this echoes in many of the speeches you've given, you sell your soul kind of one way or another. If you take the money and run and you hate pitch books and the bond yield curve and, and everything else, or if you're out there kind of in the developing world in Peace Corps and you envy your classmates making all that money in banking. There is, well, what you're describing are two very diametrically opposite things. And I guess I would say to you that there is a middle ground between those two things. There's a way that you can have the financial stability so that you can pay your bills and also find something that allows you to feel useful, have impact, have joy. You know, there it's not just one way or the other, right, as you're describing. I think for me, when I graduated from business school, I definitely was a student who had student loans and having lost my father didn't really have a backup plan in that sense. And so I clearly needed to pay my loans. I had a lot of anxiety about, you know, defaulting on my loans, which I had other friends who didn't care about that. They could live with that anxiety. But for me, I definitely knew I had to pay my bills, but I also knew sort of instinctively that I needed to be interested in what I was doing. And so I had tried my hand at investment banking. In fact, I had been very lucky to have landed a job at an investment banking firm in between my two years of um, business school. And I definitely enjoyed making the money when I did that job. But I also found that there was something unsatisfying on a personal level for me. And so after having tried it, I decided to take the lowest paying job coming out of business school in advertising. But in the end, I will say to you now, looking back, you know, 25, 30 years, it worked out fine. Mariam, what are the stakes for a median 21 or 22 year old? Because I, I, maybe this is too much information. I'm now 24 years removed from college graduation. And I kind of think back to my mindset. There's this song lyric. What was that world I was thinking of? And to me, it was like, you know, you get a ticket punched somewhere and you have your choice of various investment banks. On my campus, they were renting out the hotel ballroom and serving us, you know, chocolate fondue and sushi and talking about culture and great things. And in the end, you would you would end up at these investment banks and kind of groupthink with so many of your classmates slapping together pitch books and not enjoying it and wondering if this is just what you had to do as a grown up and i still struggle with that like what how i would have done things differently um how would i have ended up kind of at a something close Wait, to did, a self actualized career i don't know did you go into banking after college i did i worked in the brokerage industry for okay. 2 years okay after that and i i got to tell you i hated so much of it but and yet i learned so much not just about finance and investment management, but specifically what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. Those are all really great learnings. First of all, I would say there is no perfect answer. Perfect doesn't exist. Each job that you take, you learn different things from, including what you like and what you don't like. And frankly, I joke that I was a millennial before my time because I've tried a lot of different jobs. And I would come from a generation where people took one or two jobs for the whole journey. And I would say to you that now that's the norm. And so Mm. it's not a forever decision that you're making. I remember when my sister was graduating from college, I suggested that she try her hand at management consulting because I knew it was a really great training ground, you know, in the same way that I think banking was a great training ground because you did learn to work really hard. 
And you learned a lot about the things you liked and didn't like. By the way, when I worked in investment banking, I used to go around that summer and I would ask people, if they didn't pay you this much money, would you still do this job? Most people thought I was nuts. One guy told me he loved the yield curve. And I thought, well, he's in the right job, right? So there are people who actually really enjoy banking. It's not just about the paycheck. And for some people, that's enough. Like that's actually what they're looking for. I graduated from college with a friend who was very much focused on sort of reaching a target salary level when he graduated from college. But for other people, they're just built differently. And there's no judgment in that. I just think it's a matter of knowing what matters to you. And by the way, knowing that you get to iterate over and over because it's rare that somebody takes one job and that's the only job they ever have. Well, seize, seize on that point because high-performing, overachieving people like yourself, graduating from college, thirsty for the world, and experienced adversity, were somewhat broke. They tend to think that this is kind of the be-all, end-all. You're constantly being benchmarked against your classmates. It's 22. A bunch of them are going off to law school. A bunch of them are getting road scholarships. Some are going to med school. But for most of us, no one is really tracking what happens to you in your 20s, and it doesn't matter. Well, that's true, but you're built in a society that's constantly measuring you from when you get into school and you get grades to when you're graduating. I actually just had lunch with a friend whose son graduated college a year ago, and he's gone down the road of trying to do a startup, his own startup. And now his kid, you know, his friends are getting jobs at Goldman and then they're being recruited by BCG for even more money, right? And so, of course, she was basically playing out that that plays in his head as he's, you know, trying to raise money and get his product off the ground. It's hard when you're in it to know that it's a long game. And I guess that's what we who are more experienced can say. And I can say it because I've done it, which is there's a lot of pivots in your career. And this is not a forever moment. I mean, there is no perfect. So you make the best decision you can in this moment. And I tell people, what you really have to focus on is your reputation so that when you decide banking isn't for you or advertising isn't for you, those people give you a good reference no matter what job you go to from that. And by the way, most people I know, a lot of entrepreneurs I know actually took a job, got fired from a job, and that's actually the thing that unlocked them. So even failure isn't a defining thing. In fact, failure can be the very thing that unlocks you to have the most amazing career after that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Mariam Bani Karim. She's head of marketing at Nextdoor, also an executive residence at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Take me back to your graduation year. You, you and I, when we first met, and I reached out to you, seeing the circles that you traveled in professionally, and I think you know at NBC Universal when I used to do stuff for for CNBC, you were very open about the confusion that you had as an undergraduate going into the real world and how resourceful you were. I remember the Mickey Drexler mm. story that you had a pitch book for the was it the founder of Gap? Yeah, so. When I was at Barnard in college, my senior year, I mean, even at Barnard, I had a, I had an internship, a different internship every semester. That was kind of the beauty of going to school in New York. Um, so I was trying my hand at lots of different things. But like you, I remember that senior year, there were businesses that came on campus and recruited. And those were obviously the more linear jobs that you could take because you would interview, they picked you, and then you sort of had a set path, which is what we're trained to, to do in life, Right. And I was concerned, actually, about the fact that I would get sort of sucked into one of these jobs and, and just take them because it was 
sort of the paved path. And so I actually took my last semester abroad so that I didn't do that because I knew myself well enough to know that the pressure of seeing that around me would maybe suck me in. And so I actually... <laughs> what was your mom What was your mom saying simultaneously? You know, I know Iranian mothers. Forgive me, mom, for saying that, but... Well, I was fortunate because I actually didn't have that. And maybe partly because my father had passed away. When I was a junior in college, my father passed away. And so my mom didn't actually give me what is pretty common, I would say, in our culture. So I actually took that last semester abroad. So I, by de facto, I graduated with no job. In fact, I was living in Paris during my semester abroad, and I was interning at Paris Passion Magazine. So then when I graduated, I moved back home, and I applied to graduate school and ended up sort of through a contact getting a job as a paralegal, as sort of a part-time paralegal. And then I sort of came up with a scheme and ended up moving to Argentina with the savings that I had um, raised working as a paralegal, right? So it was totally a circuitous route. The gap story is that I had this idea when I was at Barnard, I wrote a travel column. And in fact, you know, not dissimilar to the internship that I had at Paris Passion. So I had put that all together as an idea for the gap. I'd gotten a meeting when I was in right after I graduated college, because my mom lived just in the suburbs of San Francisco. Nothing came of that, but I still had that mock-up. So then fast forward, when I got into business school at Columbia, that mock-up was sitting in my shelf, and a friend of mine saw it and had been in a class at Columbia where Mickey Drexler, the then CEO of The Gap, had seen it. And he said to me, you should send this to Mickey Drexler. He's really friendly. And this is pre-internet. I actually packaged it up and mailed it to Mickey Drexler not really think anything would come of it. And he called me. And I joke to this day that Mickey Drexler started me in my career, even though I didn't end up going to the gap, because what he told me and then his head of recruiting told me was that was a marketing idea. And so So where did you go? I ended up taking a job in advertising. So basically started in marketing. And you know how I ended up in advertising is I did a bubble chart in career services. And it said that I was a right brain, left brain person. And one of the career recommendations was advertising. And so honestly, that was that was the job I applied and got. And it was the only job I applied and got. And so I started off at YNR in account management. Mariam, let me get into your head when you were a paralegal <laughs> and the kind of the maturity and the de deferred gratification, because I was always amazed at people in Manhattan. If, if nothing else, you're out of college. There's always demand with these bulge bracket law firms or in San Francisco, L.A., to be a paralegal, to work crazy hours. You're even eligible for overtime. Great benefits. But it's not a passion project. I mean, it's not I'm not convinced that it's somebody who wants to even back then want to be a paralegal and then go to law school after two or three years. I mean, part of me is thinking about the show uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, <laughs> but I don't understand. You went to Argentina. You came back and said, if I could just raise this much more money and go indulge my passion, I'm buying myself more runway, more freedom, more time to find what I want to make a living out of passionately. I thought that it, I believed in this concept that if you pursued the thing that you were passionate about, that success would come. I, I believe that. And by the way, I'm living proof of that. Now, I did not like end up, you know, probably my dream was to be a photojournalist or to be an investigative reporter. I took a, a more conservative route than that in the end because I did have to pay my bills, but I sort of created a version of that for myself. And honestly, at that window, when you're graduating from college in particular, you have no mortgage, you have no family, you have no kids, like you might have loans. But it gets more complicated. And so that is, in essence, the perfect window to take more risks. And so 
I did take the paralegal job. I did it. I, I never minded working hard. I'm sort of a workaholic. So that's not the thing that really got in my way. It was more just that I wanted, I needed to care. I deeply needed to care. I needed to feel like somehow I was making a difference and that I cared about what I got to work on. And so, and I would, I was willing to take the risk to iterate. If something didn't feel right, I was willing to leave and go take another job. And, you know, sometimes that was nerve wracking, but I'm here to tell you, you know, 30 some years later that it actually worked out. And I wasn't a kid who had parents who paved my way or paid my bills. And I was an immigrant and that does come with its own complexity, but there is a pathway. But there was something that was ingrained in me from my family was just the belief that you could make something happen. And so I chased it. I, ch- I chased it like my life depended on it. That, that I think was a difference. What was your big first break? If you have to think back, that one person that pulled you aside or an aha moment. I mean, I typically have a question like this if I'm seated next to somebody interesting at a wedding or a bar mitzvah. It's that one thing. If you go back, I can tell you what that moment was for me, but what was it for you? I think there were many of those moments. I think as as I reached out to Mickey Drexler and he called, even though I didn't really have the expectation that he would, every time something like that happened, I believed in my power to make something happen. Now, I will say, I tell my kids all the time, I have a plan A, B, and C because I know that things don't always work out. But my husband always says to me, well, you know, something will happen and he'll say, of course you did that. And and I think partly for me, because I had the muscle memory that, you know, I wanted to, I read an article when I was in college. There was a cover story for New York Magazine about a punk rock ballet at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I was like, that sounds interesting. And I just found their phone number. I called and I was able to land an internship. And then when I moved to Argentina after college, I had remembered that I had seen a performance by a group called Tango Varsaviona when I was at BAM. And I looked for them and I figured out a way to find them. And then I went to meet them and I was like, oh, I saw you. I was an intern and they had me come to a rehearsal. Like every time something like this worked out, it sort of taught you that it was possible. And so those are kind of the things, it's not one single thing. It's like every single time you had hustle and that hustle paid out, you were like, oh, I I might be able to make this happen. And I think I had the resilience because many times it didn't work out to just pick myself back up, not take it personally and keep going. How did you keep your cost basis under control? I mean, you did have loans to pay off. You were mindful that you had to go to graduate school. I didn't spend more than I had. I mean, I, I really just was never somebody who did that. I thought like credit card debts made me anxious. So when I would need to go to Paris, I was willing to fly now Voyager or go in the middle of the night or, you know, I I just, I I lived frugally. I think that that's a thing. Mariam, I want to take the conversation to a turn where I get occasionally calls from somewhat despondent people going out into the real world. Either they're about to end college and you know that feeling when you come out of a highway toll booth and there's so many different lanes and it's disorienting. If you have no idea, if you're panicked right now, if you're beside yourself, what would you tell that person that's coming to you kind of open-handedly and saying, I just need your best advice? How do I make the best of a really anxious or even depressing post-undergrad path? But I used to just make lists, things I was passionate about, and then I would pursue them. In fact, it's funny, I'm having this experience with my son who's living at home at the moment, having taken a gap year and he'll apply for a job. And then he's like waiting for that job to come through. And I'm like, no, no, I'm working 10 jobs in one day. It's like a numbers game. 
And so you have to just go for it. And by the way, you have to know that there is no such thing as perfect. And so you can apply for 10 jobs and then you see what comes in and then you sort of respond to that, right? But it's not like, oh, well, I don't want to go work at a bookstore because I don't like books, right? You know, I don't want to work at a, like, you got to just go for all of it. And by the way, you think you know you don't like something, but you don't really know until you try it. Or you think you are going to absolutely love something and you take that job and, and you decide it's not for you. So I think just the the motion of going forward and doing and not taking that personally and just chasing over and over again, knowing that this isn't the ultimate job. Because I think there's a sense that the first job is the perfect job and somehow it's going to set you off. And And the truth is there's nobody I know who like, took that first job and then stayed there forever. Everybody ended up moving around. And so just go for it. The first job is your starter job. Think of it that way. Turn it around for me now that you are in a tenured position, if you will, in corporate America at Nextdoor. If you turn around and have undergraduates approach you, you do no shortage of recruiting of both undergrad, graduate students, people who don't even have college degrees. Talk to me about that. Well, the reason I like the gap story, it turns out that the gap story was a seminal story, and I find myself telling the story often. And I was giving this advice to some undergrads recently, which is the reason when I would tell that gap story, oftentimes in an interview scenario, that it was really a great story, because now I've deconstructed it, is because it brought you off the page, right? I mean, there's a resume, there's a LinkedIn profile, but the story was unique and it showed what I was made of, right? And so it showed that I was willing to chase an idea, that I had the guts to send it, that, you know, there was follow-up. So like find the thing that actually does that for you because, you know, there are a lot of resumes that come in. And so what is the thing that you're doing now that you can make into your version of a gap story? So I was actually talking to a young woman who worked at their college radio station. And I said, okay, well, let me try and turn that around for you into what I would call a gap story which is, okay, how do you book your shows on the college radio station? She said, well, people call and they pitch me. I said, okay, but that doesn't show like your go-get-it-ness because you're just responding. I said, so is there somebody that you think you would really like to book on the show? Can you come up with three of those people and go book them and then tell that story? Because when you're hiring people, you're looking for people who can act like an owner, who are willing to roll up their sleeves, who are not waiting for things to come to them, but can make things happen, right? So if you actually tell the story that, you know what, I really wanted to get Brandy Chastain on the show. Now, you know, come up with three different levels of people that you want to get on the show, and then you actually go chase them and you can tell that story. All of a sudden you come off the page because it's not just about, I'm smart, I get good grades. It's about, how do I behave in a, in a job? Do I make things happen? Do I act like an owner? Do I show my values? Like when you're hiring, you're looking for all of those things. It's not just book smart, right? So there's a lot of different kinds of smarts that we're all looking for. And frankly, finding people who are driven, can make things happen, have good values, like those are hard to find. Mariam Bani Karim. Gosh, I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. You're generous with your time when people reach out to you. And I love how you draw on your own experience and kind of the empathy of, look, I was lost once, but I'm found now, but it took me several decades. And you have such a surplus of knowledge and empathy that you help young people who reach out. And I'm, I'm grateful that you helped me. Well, let me just say, I have, I have not been found. I'm still on a search. It's life is an endless search and we're on it together. And I think that's, um, the thing I learned as a young kid, which is why I'm always happy to help because 
we live through life together. It's not a it's not an individual sport. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and rave about us to your immigrant parents. Before we let you proceed into the great wide open, dear graduate, I thought I'd pivot back to my spring 2020 conversation with Sri Srinivasan, previously Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum, Columbia University, and the City of New York, a well-traveled guy if there ever was one, and probably the most connected person I know. Sri has priceless advice on how best to nurture and tap a professional network. You know, walk me through exactly how you do this. So, so... I can't imagine the volume of emails and text messages and Slack and whatever direct messages that you get during the day. But suppose a former student gets in touch with you or somebody who would cross paths with you at the Met. You are so intensely eclectic. I can imagine you being at O'Hare and meeting a poet, and then you're availing yourself of that person's network or the way I connected you to a young woman who was looking for work and you mentored her. If that person is is getting in touch in this environment, what do they do initially? Do they they ask for a phone conversation? They can't just cut to the chase and say, I see you are connected to so-and-so in LinkedIn. I would appreciate an introduction. Yeah, so what I would say is, um, I had that call this morning, 7 a.m. Somebody call, uh, asked if they, we could talk, and I said, 7 a.m. works. And uh, you wouldn't believe, by the way, how many people will say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, I don't get up that early. <laughs> so uh, if you're reaching out for help, you adjust your calendar, right? Unless you have, you know, kids and things like that. And 7 a.m., you're getting ready for Zoom school, so you can't do it. But uh, I've had people say that to me. When I give them you know, two options, they say, oh, sorry, those times don't work for me. Uh, but in this case, she said she just, uh, you know, so we did, we did speak. Um, what I told her is that this is the time for her to be sort of almost everything I told you, time to be working on something, time to be trying something new, uh, being very honest with herself about what is she capable of. Where is she willing to go to work? How many different types of technologies does she know? Is she as open-minded as she thinks she is? And the answer is no. Not everybody is as open-minded as they think they are about certain things. And there are so many you know, ways in which she could develop her skills, put together that sizzle reel, as we call it, uh, of the things she's done, put together a really good portfolio, work on couple of uh, new skills that she's been wanting to learn. In journalism, a lot of us, including me, get by because we're a deadline-driven business and you're able to just turn it in and just move on. But now is your chance to go back and fix some of those things or really learn them and not BS your way through them like a lot of us have ended up doing in journalism because we don't have time. And we now have that time. It's a gift, it's a curse, and uh, it's a problem for uh, folks to kind of navigate that. You are listening to Sri Srinivasan on the art of building and tapping your professional network. Catch the entire interview wherever you get your pods, Apple, NPR One, Spotify, pick your app. Full disclosure, special thanks to my producer, Claire Morgan at Natterly. Listen to us at NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe at linkfulldradio.com and leave a review if you feel so compelled. You can catch me weekly on MSNBC, NPR's Here and Now, and Virginia Public Radio. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 